0: Happy Reformation Sunday to everybody, and uh, I don't think I could pick a better text for Reformation Sunday than the one we're going to be in this morning, and I hope you will see why that's the case as we, as we move on. So this morning we're going to be wrapping up John 15. We've been in this magnificent chapter for a number of weeks now, and uh, we're coming to the end this week. I've entitled this last section of John 15, Hated and Helped. What disciples must expect as they are sent into the world. So I guess you could say the the main theme that has gone through this chapter has been union with Christ. As a disciple, your primary identity is that you are in union with Christ. And as that, you've been commissioned to go and, and bear fruit as Christ's representatives in the world. And you're promised some things. You're promised much fruit as you go. Um, But you must also remember that you're being sent into the world. So not only are you promised much fruit, but you're also going to be promised hostility. And that's what we saw last week, that disciples who are in union with Christ will be hated by the world. As a disciple, your primary identity is union with Christ. You've been commissioned to be his representatives in the world. But if that's the case, we must not expect to fare any better than Christ did in the world. Um, We must know that our identity and commission will involve being hated by the world. and, And that's what we unpacked last week. But Jesus isn't finished. He not only tells us that we're going to be hated as we go out into the world, representing him into the world, but he also says that in the midst of this hate, in the midst of the world, we will be profoundly helped. And that's the point of the lesson now this morning. Disciples in union with Christ will be helped by Christ. But how? How will Christ Help you as you go into the world as his disciples. What should you expect? If it was me writing this passage, I don't know what I would put here. How do you think Christ will help disciples as they go into the world, just using your own uh, human wisdom? What do you think it would look like? Um, I think what we're going to see is kind of surprising. It's not what I would have put there, um, but it is what it, exactly what we need. So let's look at this this passage here and, uh, and see the ways that Christ will help you as you're sent into the world. The first way he helps his disciples is by giving them the spirit to enable them to testify. So look at verse 26 with me. He's just finished, talking about the hate of the world. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So after declaring the the hate disciples are to expect in the world as their commission to represent Christ, Christ again uh, reminds them that he's not left them alone. He's not abandoning them to fend for themselves in the world. He's giving them the same spirit which rested on him throughout his ministry to now rest on them and equip them and empower them and us for for ministry. So when you think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what do you what do you think of? What does the spirit do? How does the spirit help believers, especially in the midst of the world? There's not a little bit of bad teaching on the Holy Spirit that's out there in in the church today. But in these verses, and really throughout the upper room discourse, Jesus is really giving us a a, a pneumatology. Who is the Spirit? What is the Spirit doing? What is His work? What's so great about the gift of the Spirit? And uh, the way the Spirit works and helps His disciples is really different than so much of what is said out there today, how the Spirit works, how the Spirit helps. Uh, It's not what we would think up on our own. So that's what we're going to see now. But before Jesus will tell us what the Spirit will do, he first gives us the identity of the Spirit. And he does this by giving us four descriptions of of the Spirit. And we've seen all these descriptions already in John, and we're going to see it again. In other words, if you don't know his person and identity Correctly, who the Spirit is, you will misunderstand His ministry. So you need to know who He is, and then you will understand His work correctly. And so that's what Jesus will give us. So let's look at these quickly. Number one, the Spirit is the Paraclete. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes. This is the third time Jesus has spoken of the Helper or the Paraclete. He'll speak about Him again in, in chapter 16. Most of your translations call him the, the helper. Some of them translated the comforter. The word is literally the, the parakletos. It was used often of a legal advocate, someone who came alongside you in court to represent you in court and in legal affairs. Um, but the more general idea of the word is simply somebody who comes to the aid of another. They, they come alongside of another person to help them, assist them in some way. That's the idea of the, a paracletos, a helper. Look back at chapter 14, verse 16, if you would, the first time Jesus mentions him. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another paraclete. The idea behind another is that the disciples already had a paraclete. They already had a helper. Who was it? It was Jesus, Right? But now Jesus is going away. He's not going to be with them anymore. And now he's promising that another paraclete, another helper, will come in his place to continue his work with his disciples. The Spirit, in some sense, has come to replace Christ while he is away, to represent Christ in Christ's stead. So that's the Spirit's first identity. He's the paraclete, the one that is going to come to assist believers in the place of Christ. And the point that our passage is making is that he's coming. So go back to chapter 16. It says, when the helper comes. So yes, the world's going to hate you. Yes, the world will persecute you. But don't forget, even though I'm going away, and even though you're going to endure the hostility of the world, I'm not abandoning you. Another helper is coming to be with you. So that's the first identity of of the spirit. He's the paraclete. Number two... He's the one that Christ sends from the Father. Verse 26, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. So here Christ is the one that is sending the Spirit. In other passages in John, the Father is the one who is sending the Spirit. So the question is, so who is it? Is it the Father sending the Spirit, or is Christ sending the Spirit? And what's the answer? The answer is yes, right? They both are. They're both involved in some way in the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Spirit to disciples in response to the Son's finished work, in response to the Son's request for the glory and honor of the Son. And the Son sends the Spirit in complete dependence on the Father as he asks the Father for the gift of the Spirit. So you see, Christ never works in, independent from the father and the father works never works except through his son they both work together all the time the father and the son are the source of the spirit because of the complete unity of the trinity the complete unity of the father and the son the complete harmony that exists between the father and the son So you might be thinking, okay, Michael, all well and good. That's very interesting, but certainly far from practical. So so what? Who, Who cares who sends the Spirit? What does that matter? What actually matters a great deal. In fact, a proper understanding of the being of God rests on how you understand who sends the Spirit. God is a Trinity, Father, Son, And spirit. Each one is distinct from the other. Father's not the son. The son's not the spirit. And each one's fully God. In a relationship of perfect harmony. Headship and submission to one another. And through John, we've already learned about the relationship of the father with the son. How Christ is just as fully God as the father. And yet he's in complete submission and works for the purposes and the will of the Father. But now we're learning about the Holy Spirit, who is also equal to the Father and the Son, and yet has come from both of them to accomplish and work out their purposes. So this is all so important for a proper understanding of the Trinity. But it's also important so that we can understand the role of the Spirit. In every place the Spirit's called the helper, he is also identified as the one who has been sent. We've seen this theme of sending all through John. Christ was sent by the Father. Sending implies that you've been sent to accomplish the purposes of another, right? Christ was sent by the Father to do what? To do everything the Father gave him to do. And now we find that the Spirit has been sent by the Father and Christ not to do his own thing. The Spirit's been sent to accomplish the purposes and will of the Father and the Son. In other, in other words, the Spirit never functions independent from the Father and the Son. He never does his own thing. I think that's how often he's portrayed, especially in charismatic circles. He's, he's sort of doing his own thing out there. He never works independent from the Father and the Son. His primary mission, his primary aim of all that he does in this age for believers is accomplishing the purposes and seeking the glory of his sender. <clears throat> That's the identity of the spirit he's been sent. That's not all. It leads us to the next identity. He is the spirit of truth. Look what it says. When the helper comes, whom I will send you from the father, the spirit of truth. What does that mean? He's the spirit of truth means he's the spirit in service to the truth. Well, what is the truth in John? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The main task of the spirit is to mediate the truth about Christ. Look over at chapter 16, verse 13, if you will. We'll be here in a few weeks. Give you a preview. It's exactly... What Jesus means here, chapter 16, verse 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, the spirit in service to the truth, what will he do? He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He is the spirit of truth. He's come in service to the truth of Christ to mediate and to continue the truth about Christ to the world. In other words, Jesus is not a stepping stone to the better thing of the spirit. Again, how it's often portrayed. Great. Jesus sort of gives us the better thing, which is life in the Holy Spirit. What's the purpose of the spirit? It's to bring you back around to the knowledge of Christ. That's the role of the spirit. And that's his purpose. How will the spirit do that? How will the spirit testify about Christ? How is he the spirit of truth? We'll go back to chapter 14, verse 26. How would the spirit do this work of testifying about, about Christ that we saw in chapter 16? Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, talking to the 11 apostles, teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It would be primarily as the Spirit enabled the apostles to remember, recall everything that Christ did, everything that Christ said, and enabling them to interpret it correctly. In other words, the gift of the Spirit was first to the apostles to enable them to write the New Testament scriptures. So that would be preserved for you and for me. But the Spirit also is for us. He's also the Spirit of truth for us, right? Well, how In what way? Well, not by enabling you to write scripture, right? But by doing what? By bringing you back to the scriptures, by causing you to be nourished and groan and have faith in the writings of the apostles. I'll give you an example here from 1 John 4, verse 6. Notice the word spirit of truth. John says we are from God. Spe- speaking specifically of the apostolic word, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Listens to the words of the apostles, and as it's communicated through the church. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth. What's the spirit's role in your life as a disciple? It's to bring you to the words of the apostles. The New Testament scriptures to cause you to believe them and grow in them and be nourished by them. He's the spirit of truth. Almost done. There's one more identity. He's the one who goes out from the father. Go back to chapter 15. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father. Now, some of you might be aware that there is a long history of debate on this, uh, on this phrase here and a big schism took place in the church. We don't have time to talk about it, um, Some people think it's talking about the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. Where did he come from, from the Father or from the Son or from both? I think this text simply means that the Spirit was sent by the Father, just like he was sent by Christ in the the previous verse. It's highlighting the mission of the Spirit in this age. He's coming from the Father in service to Christ. So that's the identity of the Spirit. He's been given to disciples. He's distinct from the Father. He's sent in complete harmony and submission with the Father and the Son. He's come for the purposes and glory of the Father and the Son. And all this highlights that the Spirit, too, must be just as fully God as the Father and the Son. In other words, we're getting a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity in this one verse. All three members of the Trinity are here in their relationships with one another. It's incredible. But so what? What? That's the identity of the Spirit, but what will he do? How will that identity affect his job, his mission? Well, that brings us to verse 26b through, through 27 now, which tell us about the testimony of Spirit-inspired disciples. Look at the rest of the verse. He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So this is the main thing the Spirit will do, what we already saw. He will testify about Christ. Because the Spirit is all those things we just listed, therefore his primary purpose and his primary aim is to testify about Christ. The Spirit's main role is to point people to Jesus. That's what the Spirit is about in this life. But how will he do that? Does he do it by just sort of zapping people as they're walking along and make them start to think about Jesus? Is that how he works? No. How does he work? Verse 27. And you also will bear witness. Talking to the 11 apostles here. It's probably better translated as an imperative. You must bear witness. He will bear witness about me and you must Bear witness. Why? Why must the disciples bear witness? Look at the rest of the verse. Because you've been with me from the beginning. The disciples have seen and heard all that Christ did and all that Christ said so that they would be authorized witnesses of Christ. Inspired by the spirit to pass his words on to the next generation, to you and I. That's how the spirit testifies about Christ. Give you a few examples from, from John's writings here. First John, chapter one, look at all these testimony words, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, talking about John and the other disciples. goes down a little bit more. We've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. John 20, 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but these are written as eyewitness-inspired testimony through the Spirit communicated to future generations by John. John 21, 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who's written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Standing by the cross, uh, John says, he who saw it has borne witness, and his testimony is true. In other words, the main way the Holy Spirit testifies about Christ is through the apostles in your New Testament Bibles. So how does that help? How's that a help? We said all this is a help, right? How does that help disciples in this world? will give you a few ways here. It's a gift because through the testimony of the eyewitness apostles, many will come to faith in Christ. So we we remember back in chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, if they kept my word, they'll also keep your word. Just as some people kept Christ's word. Some people will keep the word of the apostles. In chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's what the Spirit's doing. He's going to testify about Christ through the apostles, through which many are going to believe, you and I. Another way, through the testimony of the eyewitness apostles, the world will be convicted and exposed. The the uh, salvation of people, it's not the only thing that's going to be accomplished through the testimony of the Spirit. This is sort of where that legal courtroom terminology of the spirit comes in. He's going to be a prosecuting attorney, attorney. Attorney through the testimony of disciples. The world ultimately was not putting Christ on trial when Christ came. Christ put the world on trial. And the same is true with you and I. And through the testimony of the apostles, we the scriptures are not on trial by the world. The world has been put on trial. By the coming of the scriptures, by the testimony of the Spirit as the world rejects it, exposing the true nature of the world. That's what the Spirit will do. He'll testify about Christ, he'll do it through inspired eyewitnesses, and these are some things that will happen through that testimony. But while these verses are referring specifically to the apostles, they also apply to us, don't they? Because through the testimony, of the spirit through the apostles, subsequent generations of disciples will be able to bear witness. And this work will continue to go, to go forward. And we do it not by writing scripture. We do it by repeating scripture. We do it by passing scripture on to our coworkers and to our friends and to our families. You too are a witness and a testimony as you pass on the inspired witness of of scripture. In other words, the main point of this passage is that the gift of the Holy Spirit enables us to testify about Jesus. But that's actually the very basis of the world's hate. You see that? The gift of the Spirit its not to remove the world's hate from us. It's actually the very cause of the world's hate to us. Because the Spirit is what brings the words of Christ to us. It's the link that makes us one with Christ, which is what the world hates so much. You say, well, how is that a help? (laughs) I thought this is supposed to be a help. It's just increasing the hate, right? It's a help because that's what we've been left here to do. That's what you have been left here to do mainly, testify about Christ. We've been left here to be representative witnesses of Christ as we pass on the inspired records of all that Christ said and did. Christ helps his disciples by not leaving them without what they need to accomplish their mission. Our main aim in life must not be avoiding the hate of the world. Our main aim in life must be representing Christ by passing on his word, being his witnesses. So before we move on, I just want to help apply this a little bit, a little bit better to our lives. Number one, realize the incredible gift of the scriptures that you have. That's why it's a very appropriate text for Reformation Sunday, isn't it? It was all about the authority of the scriptures alone. So in one sense, the, the, the application of these verses is for the apostles, right? Christ is speaking to the apostles. But it also applies to us. Remember, John is writing this for his readers who are not apostles, It applies to us by pointing us back to something that happened way back then. Remember what happened back then. It applies to us by giving the historical basis and grounds for Christianity. You have a solid base for your faith. Just as solid as the very Trinity itself. Inspired by the Spirit who's in full commitment to the Father and the Son. You have a very strong base. For faith in the New Testament scriptures. What a gift. We have the very words of Christ. Number two. We can have confidence that. As you pass on the scriptures. You are functioning. As Christ's representative witnesses. That's what you've been left here to do. Faithfully share the gospel. Faithfully speak what Christ did. That's your job. Number three. Know that this will be the very basis of the world's hate. The Spirit-inspired scriptures are the link between us and Christ. It is the reason the world hates us. So when you share the gospel at work, um, we had a good discussion of this in our small group uh, this past Wednesday. Um, and people respond with dislike, hostility, ignoring, laughing, whatever it is. Don't think that's unusual. Of course they do. It's The world. Don't think something's gone wrong. Don't think you've done something wrong. Stay faithful to be a witness. Speak the scriptures. Don't let the hate of the world keep you from testifying to the word of God. Know that the testimony of Christ is the reason for the world's hate. And it's the commission that we have been given. So that's the first way Christ helps his disciples not by removing the hate, but by equipping them with everything they need to fulfill this mission, to be a witness in this world. That's not all. Come now to chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, which tell us that Christ also helps his disciples by giving them his words to prepare them for persecution. Christ doesn't help us by removing persecution, but by giving us words to sustain us in the persecution. And he'll prepare his disciples with um, his words in, in two ways. So let's look at these quickly. In verses one through three, Christ's words protect his disciples from apostasy. Look at verse one through three. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. And they will do this, they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. What's the greatest danger that disciples face as they're sent out into a hostile world? What's the greatest danger that threatens you as you look the world's hate directed towards Christ squarely in the eyes? What do you think? Perhaps you think it's the loss of life, physical pain, loss of reputation, loss of material possessions. Jesus says it's something much, much worse. It's that you would fall away, that you would apostatize from Christ. Why has Jesus taught them everything he has so far? Verses 18 to 27 about the world's hate. He tells us here the primary purpose is so that you would not fall away. The word is scandalizo. You sort of hear the idea of scandalized. It refers to stumbling over, over over something such that you are destroyed. It was used back of the crowd in chapter six, verse sixty-one. It said Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, "Do you take offense? Same word. Are you scandalized by this? Do you stumble over this?" The crowd was offended. They, they were offended at Christ's word and they defected from him. They walked away. A multitude of disciples did. And that's what Christ wants to protect us from. So that would not happen to us. And he'll do it by preparing us for persecution. Have you ever been caught off guard by something? Um, you're not expecting something to happen and so you were not prepared for it when it came? Sure, we have all had the opposite experience as well. We didn't know how something was going to happen. Pretty sure it was going to happen. And so we prepared for it. And so when it did happen, we, we weren't caught off guard, right? The morning of December 7th, 1941, it's a calm morning, beautiful morning in Pearl Harbor. mama and I had the opportunity to go visit there this, this past summer. Sobering place. That morning, they did not expect anything out of the ordinary to happen. It's very interesting as we were going through the museum, highlighting just this was the center of the Pacific Naval Fleet of the United States of America. They reckoned that if the Japanese were to attack anywhere, it would not be here. Certainly, it wouldn't be Pearl Harbor. With all of its defenses, with all of its firepower, we're safe. Little did they know, the Japanese had put together a master plan, and they masterfully executed it. And that morning, as the sun came up, hundreds of planes bombarded Pearl Harbor, caught completely off guard. Hundreds of people died. You just wonder, what would have happened had they known? Had they not just assumed that they were safe? Had they prepared, had people been ready at the machine guns and and people in the airplanes ready to go. They wouldn't have been caught off guard. And and that's what Christ wants to help us with. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard, not ready. By the persecution that's coming. He doesn't want his disciples to be surprised by it. And so he prepares them. And he prepares them by forewarning them of the persecutions that are coming. Look at verse 2. It says they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. These are very Jewish forms of persecution. To be put out of the synagogue is to be expelled from Jewish life. It's like church discipline, only only worse. You're, You're reckoned to be an apostate, a heretic, have no help in the Jewish community anymore. Very similar to what happens to Muslims when they convert to the faith. Jesus warns that the disciples will be killed, but it will be done in the name of God as an act of worship to God. These Jews will be very sincere as they're putting supposed heretics to death. It will look like these people are worshiping God and that disciples are heretics. That's exactly how Paul went around murdering Christians, isn't it, before he was converted? He thought he was doing it in service to God. So what is it about these persecutions that would be so threatening for Christ's disciples? Just think about the massive amounts of pressure that it would have brought. These are pious Jews who claim to know and love God. Think about how tempting it would be under these pressures to think, maybe we were wrong all along. Maybe Christ was a false messiah. Maybe it would be better if we just went back to Judaism And that's why Jesus is teaching them, be ready, be prepared, be on guard, don't be surprised by it when it comes. It's not evidence against Christ, it's not evidence that things shouldn't be this way. He warns them so that when it does happen, they would expect it and would not be surprised. That's not all. He forewarns them, but he also interprets the persecutions for them. Verse 3 says, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Disciples must interpret the persecutions rightly. It will look like it's done in the name of God, but it's really because they don't know God. Because they don't know Christ. We must interpret them rightly. And John is here recording this because in all likelihood, these are the same persecutions that his readers were facing. And they also apply to us, because although we're not going to face these kind of persecutions, none of us are are Jews. We will face persecution, and it is obviously on the rise. All of us know that. And the point is that aligning with Christ will bring persecution in one form or another. It will. Don't be surprised by it. If you're not prepared for that, you will be caught off guard. Maybe you'll abandon Christ altogether. You'll say, this is not what I signed up for. Or maybe it'll look like being like Peter or the other disciples and denying Christ in a key moment, keeping your mouth closed when you should speak, denying association with him. Jesus wants us to be ready so that when it comes, we could say, I did not know how you were going to come. I didn't know when you were going to come. But I knew you were going to come, and I'm ready. That's the posture Jesus wants you to have. Well, we're almost done. He protects his disciples with his words from apostasy, and now Christ's words provide his disciples with what they will need to remember in the face of persecution. Look at verse 4. I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. He's speaking to them now. They don't get everything he's saying, but he's given it to the disciples and he's given it to us now so that when they come, you would remember what Christ said. You wouldn't be surprised. You would have been prepared. Before we finish, I want to note one thing. I think it's key in this verse. Look what he says. When their hour comes. Their hour. What is their hour? What referred in verse 2 to the time when they're going to kill disciples. It's their hour. It looks like they have the upper hand. It looks like they are winning and the disciples are losing. It's their hour. It will appear to everyone that they have won and we have lost. But that word hour is rich in irony, isn't it? Because where have we heard of the hour in John? What is the hour? It is the moment of Christ's crucifixion. Everything's building to that hour. And in Christ's crucifixion, it was the moment that looked like Christ suffered the greatest defeat, suffered the greatest agony. Christ lost is what it appeared. But in that hour, it was actually the moment of Christ's greatest victory, and Christ's greatest conquering of sin, death, and the devil. And I think that's what Christ wants us to hear here. We have an hour coming. It's going to be the hour of the world. When it looks like the world has victory, we'll suffer shame and defeat, but it will actually be the hour of our greatest triumph and victory. Because as we stay faithful to Christ unto death, we will enter into the eternal joy and presence of God and one day return with Christ to reign on the earth. This is all over the place in the book of Revelation. They had conquered the beast in the number of its name. How? How do you conquer the beast? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even to death. You want to conquer the world? You be conquered by the world, by faith in Christ. Not loving your life even unto death. So that's how Jesus helps us prepare for persecution. And the hostility of the world were hated and helped. As disciples, we're in union with Christ, and that is an amazing benefit, but it also means hostility. You will not be treated any better than Christ because you've been given his words. You've been sent to be a testimony and a witness. But he also doesn't want you to be on guard. He wants you to be saying, I didn't know persecution when you were going to come, how you were going to come, but I've been waiting and I'm ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. I ask that you would cause it to take root in our hearts, and you would help us to be faithful witnesses, faithful disciples for the glory of Christ. We love you, and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.